Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Last week, we were talking about Louis and Jerome Bonaparte, respectively the kings of Holland and the kings of Westphalia. And then the week before that, we were talking about Joseph Bonaparte, the older brother of Napoleon Bonaparte and the king of Spain, and prior to that, the king of Naples. So continuing with this trend of speaking about, I guess, the Napoleonic kings, that being the kings who the individuals who were made kings by Napoleon following his conquest during the various wars of coalition from the time of the French Revolution until Napoleon's eventual defeat in 1815. So in that regard today, we're going to be jumping into the life of Joachim Mora, the famous cavalry commander of Napoleon, said to be one of the best cavalry commanders in, in not just France, but likely all of Europe, and definitely a very well-known individual in that respect, but also as the king of Naples, which he served until he was eventually overthrown and executed at the end of 1815. And we're talking about these as a prelude before I jump into the life of Murdoch himself. I think it's important to note because these canes that Napoleon installed were an integral part into of Napoleon's empirical system as a whole. France, when it went out in its conquest during the time of Napoleon, only ever really directly annexed um, Belgium and a few parts of Italy. It never really sought to bring under its direct control the entirety of Europe. Instead, Napoleon sought to exert his control over Europe through various Napoleonic kings, various puppet kings like his relatives, who he thought would remain, for the most part, relatively loyal to him and the French cause. But as we've seen in the previous two episodes of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, Joseph Bonaparte had his own struggles in containing Spain. So while he was loyal to Napoleon, he had administrative troubles that really cracked the empire. But meanwhile, in contrast to that, you had his two brothers, Louis and Jerome, both whom in ways opposed Napoleon, especially in the case of Louis, who outright refused to sacrifice Holland for France like Napoleon expected to. So as you can see, the reason why it's important to talk about these individuals is because of the role they had in this French empire. And and their decisions to either support or refuse Napoleon in a large part contributed to Napoleon's eventual downfall, as we'll see is the case eventually with Marshal Murat. So with that, let's jump right into the life of Marshal Murat. Murat was born on the 25th of March, 1767, in La Bastide Fontenier, in southwestern France, um, to Pierre Murat Yordi, an affluent innkeeper, Roman Catholic church warden, postmaster. So he came from, uh, unlike many who came to be well-known during the time of the Napoleonic Wars, came from a more modest background than many. Many individuals we've talked about have come from, they were either farmers, they were either... Um, and mo for the most part, most part, from very poor backgrounds. Marshal Murat, on the other hand, definitely not a member of the aristocracy. You're not really going to see anyone from the aristocracy come out during the time of the revolution to rise to prominence, especially 
as well among Napoleon's marshals. That just really isn't the case. But Marshal Murat does come from a more affluent background than a number of people involved in Napoleon, Napoleon's army as a whole. And as a you know Roman Catholic Church warden and driven by, obviously, a deeply religious um, personal belief, Murat's parents had intended for uh, Joachim to actually at first pursue a vocation in the church, and he did so for a decent amount of time. He was taught at the par- at the local par- by the local parish priest. After which he won a place at the College of Saint Michael in Cahors, where he, when he was ten years old, where he continued to learn, and then he would en- eventually enter the seminary of Lazaritz at Toulouse. But eventually, Yo- Murat found out that this wasn't exactly the life calling. For him, when a regiment of cavalry passed the city in 1787, he ditched the seminary and ran off and enlisted on the 23rd of February of that year in the Chasseurs des Ardennes, which became eventually known as the Chasseurs de Champagne. Eventually, also as well, the the 12th Chasseurs. The reason for this renaming convention is that during the time of the French Revolution, the French tried to, at least the revolutionaries in particular, tried to get rid of all of the names of the old regime, hence why the name changed. And then eventually, as the changes within the government of the revolutionary itself occurred, like the reign of terror during the time of the Directory Council of 500, as those changes were going on, everyone was trying to remove all evidence of the past regime, kind of why you have these various name changes overall. Now, with that little tidbit aside about uh, French revolutionary name changes during the time period, um, Murat, after, ser- went after enlisting and serving in the 12 Chasseurs, in 1789, as a result of a fa- an affair between him and several officers within the regiment, was forced to eventually resign, upon which he would return to his family, becoming a clerk and haberdasher at saint Serre. By 1790, though, only a year later after this happened, Murat would once again rejoin the military under the National Guard. The National Guard being, at this point in time anyway within France, mainly a reserve force which was meant to put down any royalist uprisings or, and basically ensure the loyalty of the local region to the Republic. Now, as part of this, he was eventually sent by, elected by the fellow officers within his own regiment to be sent to Paris as a representative of the Bastille Day. And it was in Paris, as during these celebrations, that Murat actually came across some issues, politically at least, because dur- part, mainly from the 12th, during his time with the 12 Chasseurs. The 12 Chasseurs had actually been sent to Montmédy to protect the royal flam- family during its famous flight to Veronese, this being the time when King Louis and his wife Marie Antoinette attempted to escape their house arrest in Paris, in, o- over to Austria, which was eventually caught, found out, and they were ex- and expedited back to France. But the 12th Chasseurs, which Joachim was a part of at the time, was directly involved in this affair in sneaking the king out. And in an age of uh, the Re- French Revolution, where any action that could have been inherently perceived as loyalist was viewed with such suspicion that it would possibly warrant an execution, as was seen during the Reign of Terror, where you had people getting their had cut off by the guillotine for the very slightest of suspicions. So this was a very politically dangerous situation for Murat, and he had to find his way out of it. And Murat and his regiment would actually make a speech uh, in support of the Republic at Toul in 1792 in order to attempt to persuade and show their loyalty. And apparently, um, despite not much having been noted on what exactly the speech was and any public perceptions to it, Murat was never really um, questioned on his loyalty ever again, nor was he ever executed. So, obviously, it must have worked enough that he was able to avoid 
suspicion. In 1792, Murat would then go on to join the Constitutional Guard, but leaving it in the same year, citing constant quarreling and dueling within the regiment itself. And he also claimed it was to avoid punishment for being absent without leave as a result of these various um, encounters with dueling he found himself in. For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos. The show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present. For all of you just tuning in, welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We just got done talking about the early life of Marshal Joachim Morat and his time in the early army during the French Revolution. And now we're going to jump right in, continuing that discussion and discussing furthermore upon his Republican loyalty and his uh, loyalty to the Republic and the Revolution's ideas as a whole. So jumping back in time a year before this 1790 speech, uh, 1792 speech in Toul, as I was talking about, Murat ended up writing to his brother in 1791, stating that he would actually sooner die than cease to be a patriot. Whether the letter itself never exactly made its way into social circles, which would have relieved his loyalty, not to mention it's merely a letter and wasn't exactly a proof of action, but it's definitely indicative if you bring in the context, if you start believing that Joachim is a patriot, truly was, then the letter is clear in showing to the extent to which he actually was. That being, he was so willing and so loyal to the Republic and its ideas that he was willing to die for them. Now, this would also his loyalty would be more so proven for action outside of the speech at all after this time in the Constitution, uh, Constitutional Guard. Um, as I mentioned, he left the Constitutional Guard as a result of quarrels with officers and the result of various duels he found himself getting into. Another potential reason for why he did this was mainly possibly a political one. Upon his departure from the Guard, he reported to the Committee of Surveillance of the Constitutional Assembly that the Guard was actually guilty of treason, and that is second that is Lieutenant Colonel, a man by the name of Decores, had encouraged him to serve in the emigre army of Louis-Joseph, Louis the Prince of Condé, the emigre army being an army of royalists who had fled France and were now attempting to invade it and restore the Bourbon monarchy. And at this, you know, upon revealing this and convicting the traitor, garnered support for, uh, for him amongst the Republicans. And for this, Murat was able to rejoin his former regiment and was promoted the corporal in April that year and later to sergeant in May. By the 19th of November in 1792, Borat was 25 years old and wrote back to his family, elated at this re recent promotion. As a Sioux lieutenant at the time, he thought that his family would finally recognize that he had no propensity for the priesthood or any sort of uh, work with the clergy. And he was hoping to prove to them that he had not been wrong in wishing to be a soldier. It's important to note that up to this time, his family still was constantly doubting um, the French Revolution, his role as a soldier within it, especially given that the French Revolution, as you may or may not be aware, was very anti-Catholic, and his father being a uh, staunch Catholic was kind of like, you know, this French Revolution thing, not really kind of my deal. I, I, you know, maybe you shouldn't be involved with that. So Joachim Murat was really trying to show to his parents that this was a good thing and that he was succeeding and that the priest life that they wanted for him was not something that he was destined for. Serving for three years in the regiment that he had joined in 1792, Murat eventually found himself in Paris during the infamous 13th Vendemier on the 3rd of October. Now, the 13th Vendemier, to give some background to it, was a re revolution within the city of Paris itself against the newly established directory, which, coming from the reign of terror, sought to consolidate the revolutionary government into something more, I guess, stable is probably the best way to put it, considering that, 
you definitely could not classify anything bef- during the Reign of Terror as being a stable and reliable form of government. So the Directory was the answer to this instability, to try and actually create a government that people recognize as legitimate and that would actually be able to guide the country effectively, especially after a damaging events such as the Reign of Terror, which saw thousands of ministers, administrators, bureaucrats all be decapitated for suspicion. So the directory was really trying to uh, stabilize things. But as they were doing this, there was pushback from the Catholic and pro-loyalist forces within Paris, who saw the attempts by the directory to stabilize, centralize control as being the potential downfall of the royalist effort as a whole leading to a popular revolt within the city of Paris, which Napoleon Bonaparte, at the time directing uh, the garrison within Paris, was uh, or uh, was directed to put down. And it was during this that Marshal Murat would for- have his first interaction with Napoleon and also be uh, well regarded for it. So during this time, during this, Napoleon, in order to put down the uh, rioters, had called upon Marshal Murat to gather artillery from a suburb outside of the control of the government's forest in Camp de Sablons. And Murat, uh, using, I guess, what would come to be eventually his cavalry prowess, was able to maneuver his cavalry regiment to the camp, bypassing the roughly 30,000 rioters in the city, and also got the 40 cannons back to the center of Paris, upon which Napoleon was able to use his infamous whiff of grape shot to uh, kill 300 of the rioters and ultimately dispel them and save the directory. And for his involvement within this and in saving the directory, um, Murat was made the chief of brigade, the equivalent of a colonel, and remained under Napoleon's command in Italy and Egypt as probably, as Napoleon would put it, one of his best officers. By 1796, things within Paris had stabilized, allowing Napoleon to actually be sent to northern Italy to lead a campaign against the Austrians as General Bonaparte. Murat, under the command of Napoleon already, would follow him, originally as his aide-de-camp and later his commander of the cavalry during the many campaigns against the Austrians. During these battles, Murat's valor and daring cavalry charges earned him eventually the rank of General and many of the battles that Murat took place in would become many of Napoleon Bonaparte's famous battles. In these battles, as some of you may be aware about Napoleonic tactics, many of them rely on very quick, very precise maneuvers to defeat superior forces, especially considering that the French forces in many battles during this time were quite smaller and not as well trained as the Austrian forces, requiring Napoleon to rely very heavily on these tactics to eventually defeat the forces. Marshal Murat was very skilled in following these orders with his cavalry, making these daring charges and very quick maneuvers, which in large part actually means that Murat was essential to contributing um, and establishing uh, Bonaparte's legendary fame and popularity within France during these campaigns. Not only did this get Murat in his good graces, eventually helping him to secure the promotion of Marshal when Napoleon became emperor, but it certainly distinguished Murat as a capable cavalry commander within Europe as a whole. In 1798, after the Italian campaign, Murat would go on to command the cavalry during the Egyptian expedition, and in 1799 would join Napoleon in returning to France, where he would partake with playing an important role in Napoleon's coup in, in the 18th of Brumaire, when he first assumed political power. As a result of his loyal support for Napoleon during this coup and during his campaigns in Italy and his campaign in Egypt, Murat would actually go on to marry Napoleon's sister, Caroline Bonaparte, on the 20th of January, 1800, really cementing now and making a family relationship, not just a military friendship and business, I guess, business relationship, for lack of a better word, between Napoleon and Murat.
If you're not reading and learning history, then you're doomed to repeat it. For all of you just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos. For all of you just tuning in, welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We just got done talking about the early campaigns of Joachim Murat, his time with Napoleon, and how the ties between the two of them really evolved into something more than just a military acquaintanceship, partnership, and eventually into really what what was family relations, which would lead to Murat becoming quite influential within the French Empire and quite an important piece in Napoleon's, I guess, grand game within Europe as a whole. Napoleon would end up making Murat a marshal of the empire on the 18th of May, 1804, likely as a result of his marriage to his sister and also his loyalty to Napoleon during the uh, coup and to years of successful service under Napoleon in Egypt and Italy. He was also granted the title of, quote, the finest, the first horseman of Europe as in recognition of the various cavalry and horsemen achievements that most people in Europe and especially within France had recognized him for. He was made, in addition to that, a prince of, an, of the empire, given his marriage ties, but also admiral of the empire, interestingly enough, even though that he had very little knowledge about naval warfare, nor would he ever go on to actually command any naval actions. So it's a bit of a weird title for him to have, but for some reason Napoleon decided to give it to him. After Napoleon's conquest, the Grand Duchy of Berg and the Duchy of Cleves would actually be given to Joachim Murat to rule on the 15th of March in 1806, holding this title until the 1st of August, 1808, when he would be named King of Naples following Joseph Bonaparte's departure for Spain. So he would assume this title in Naples, replacing Napoleon's older brother, who had previously governed the territory. However, this transition would be a bit difficult. He went from ruling what were very small states within Germany to leading something that had an entirely different culture, entirely different... Um, the people had an entirely different mindset ide- and ideology, had a very different culture than what he was used to. But not only that, uh, Joseph had took with him many of the uh, nation's able-bodied soldiers and administrators, leaving Joachim Murat with not much of a basis to which to govern the kingdom. Murat was also certainly not as popular as Joseph was. As we talked about in the Joseph episode, Joseph really made himself a people king. He really appealed to the people directly for support. And he was quite popular amongst the people for that. So when he was, in the eyes of the people of southern Italy, replaced by uh, Joachim Ra, there was a lot of discontent as he really didn't live up to the image or exceed the image that Joseph did. Now, Joachim did not actually spend much time governing Naples like Joseph did, another reason for his unpopularity. Murat was often out and about with the Grand Armée of France, which he did, for example, in the Russian campaign of 1812, where he really, again, distinguished himself as probably the best cavalry commander of the Grand Armée, if not all of Europe, in battles uh, such as Smolensk and Borodino and where he executed as well, helped coordinate Napoleon's retreat out of Russia itself. He continued to serve Napoleon during the German campaign of 1813, but following Napoleon's defeat at the Battle of Leipzig, Murat actually reached out to the Allies in order to save his throne, securing um, an agreement from Austria that they would recognize his right to Naples and cede any claim to it in exchange for 30,000 troops and switching sides to the coalition. Napoleon was so shocked by Joachim Murat's betrayal that he initially... um, uh, blamed his sister, Caroline, the wife of Murat, for being the reason that he switched, as he simply could not comprehend that Murat, having been with him for so long, would do something so disloyal as to betray him outright and join the Allies. 
Joining the Allies, Murat would march his troops north uh, against Napoleon's stepson, Eugene de Baranis, the viceroy of the Kingdom of Italy. However, he actually as well at this time opened secret communication with Eugene, exploring the options of switching sides once again back to the back to the side of Napoleonic France, which would eventually prove to be very detrimental to Murat. Eventually, though, this option would be closed to him. He would decide to stick with the Allies, and he would attack uh, Eugene at Piacenza. When Napoleon abdicated on the 11th of April, 1814, and Eugene and Murat agreed to an armistice, Murat would return to Naples, but by this time, as a result of the secret communications between him and Eugene, the Allies didn't really trust him, and Murat, as a result, in realizing this, came to believe that they were actually plotting to depose him. When Napoleon returned in 1815, Murat would strike out to conduct a preemptive attack against the Austrian forces in Rimini, joining Napoleon's side, thinking that if Napoleon came back and he won, he would be spared the throne. However, this would prove to be a fatal mistake, as the Congress of Vienna, seeing this attack, assumed he was siding with Napoleon, even though it was more so of a strategic move to prevent the Allies from attacking him, and the fact that Napoleon at this time had actually not really wanted to go to war. So in attacking, even though he wasn't intending to, he dragged himself onto the side of Napoleon and eventually instituted his own downfall with that move. By the 2nd of April, Murat had marched all the way to Bologna without a fight, but soon he was in rapid retreat as the Austrians crossed the Po River at Ociobello, and his Neapolitan forces were disintegrated at the first sign of a skirmish. Murat withdrew the very little forces he had left to Sena, then Ancona, and then eventually Tolentino, where he was defeated and the army was completely destroyed on the 3rd of May, 1815, and he would actually flee from Naples to France, upon which Ferdinand IV would be restored to the Kingdom of Naples by the Austrians and the Allied forces. Having fled Naples to France, he would once again try to return to the town of Pizzo in that same year, upon which he would be captured by the forces of Ferdinand XIV and on the 13th of October, ordered to execution. When the fatal moment of execution arrived, Murat was said to have walked with a firm step to his place of execution, as calm, as unmoved as if he had been going to an ordinary military review. He, was, he would refuse to accept a chair for the execution, nor would he allow his eyes to be covered and blinded. Before his death, he was, said, he was reported to have said, quote, I have braved death too often to fear it, end quote. He was said to have stood upright, proudly, and stared undauntedly at the guns pointed at him, with his countenance towards the soldiers. And when all was ready, he would, it was said that he pulled out a carving of upon which the wife of his head was engraved, and said to the soldiers, Soldiers, do your duty, straight to the heart, but spare the face, fire. And thus ended the life and reign of Marshal Joachim Murat. Thanks for joining us. Another week of history shouldn't be a mystery. Join us next week as we look at, a, at another one of Napoleon's kings, Jean Bernadotte, the King of Sweden. And that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs. There's many more historical figures from our past to discuss. So be sure to join us same time, same place next week for a new edition of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.